whatever the problem it is that you're solving, it's not sufficient that it just be big and important. It has to be actually unique and authentic to you. Meaning, do you care about this problem being solved? Welcome back. Thanks again for joining us. This week, we are talking with Brendan Wallace, who started a venture capital firm called Fifth Wall, and we are going to get into that interview shortly. One of the concerns that I have uh, before we get into our interview today is that listeners might think that we're really against these kind of, you know, careers in investment banking or in consulting or any of the kind of traditional trajectories that we've touched on. I don't think that that's how we feel, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of touch on that. Yeah, I actually think that's really important to clarify. Um, Traditional career paths can actually lead to very impactful work. I think the issue that I have with them often is, as Alex Stavros said last time, a lot of people don't understand why they're going into them. And a lot of these traditional career paths don't necessarily articulate very clearly what their impact could be. So I think it's, it's a lot more work for those who enter them to kind of figure out why am I entering them? Who are they serving and how can I leverage this training into something that I can do with some meaning? Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that, let's get into our interview with Brendan Wallace. This week, we're joined by Brendan Wallace. Brendan is co-founder and managing partner of Fifth Wall, a venture capital firm that focuses on transformation and technological innovation with a portfolio that includes investments in real estate, climate technology, and retail. Brendan graduated with a degree in political science and economics from Princeton University and holds an MBA from Stanford and has prior experience in real estate investment banking and private equity. Brendan, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can we kind of start by talking about um, what you do currently and kind of what choices you made to get there? Yeah, so uh, what I do currently is I am the co-founder and managing partner at a venture capital fund called Bithball. Uh, We're an asset manager that kind of focuses on the collision of the real estate industry, kind of the built environment, which is the largest industry in the United States, and technology, right? Technology is colliding with a lot of big industries. I think everyone has read a lot about those disruptions that have taken place, but real estate representing 13% of US GDP is really one of the last to be transformed by tech. And so I started a firm uh, in 2016 when we launched and we wanted to be the first institutional venture capital investor investing at the intersection of real estate and tech. And we had this really unique model that we kind of brought to bear to do so, which is we saw that, you know, there were corporates that were doing venture capital kind of on their own, but predictably not that well. Corporations don't tend to do venture capital very well, but yet they have all this distribution. And so there was this opportunity to bring in the largest owners and operators and developers of real estate who are in turn the largest customers and partners and adopters and users of the technologies we're investing in as LPs. I mean, they were actually investors in our fund, which was at the time um, a very novel, uh, atypical structure for venture capital. And we did that uh, in 2017. We launched our first fund. It was a $212 million fund um, with seven strategic LPs. Since then, our model has just grown. The model uh, happens to work very, very well. And we now manage $1.7 billion across a number of different funds in a number of different geographies. 
And we've expanded from seven strategic real estate owner operator developers in our first fund, all from the US, to now 70 across 15 different countries. Um, so today we are kind of the largest, the most active, probably the most synonymous uh, asset manager focused on real estate technology. So that's super interesting. And um, I think I would love to know more about like, how did you decide to get into venture capital? You know, it was very um, circuitous. You, you, I'm sure everyone has seen the uh, Steve Jobs commencement speech at Stanford, where he talks about how it's very difficult to connect the dots in your life in advance, a priori, that they kind of only make sense looking backward. And so it's probably useful maybe just to start at the beginning of, of my career, actually. So um, I graduated Princeton in 2004. Like many people out of Princeton, I was recruited by you know, the major investment banks. Um, and so I went to work at Goldman Sachs doing uh, real estate investment banking. I always had this passion for real estate. I actually wrote my senior thesis at Princeton on, on urban planning. So it was, I had this kind of intuition, a probably imperfect way of articulating that despite going into investment banking was to go into real estate investment banking, which is what I did. I didn't really like it all that much. I found it, uh, it just wasn't for me. You're, you're, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Goldman Sachs and I have a lot of respect for investment banking as a sector, but it just didn't resonate with me. Um, so at the time, this is in, you know, 2005, I uh, started uh, getting involved in Goldman Structured Products Group, which was kind of what is today called CMBS. Um, so Structured Mortgage Backed Securities. And this was, this was, you know, anyone who's seen the, the big short knows this was the heyday of that. Um, and so, you know, I was sitting working on a lot of these structured instruments kind of at the, the epicenter uh, or the origin of, of the financial crisis, somewhat unknowingly. You know, I was 22 years old, um, but I was, I was in that position. And then um, I just decided banking wasn't for me. And I went on to Blackstone and I was in real estate private equity at Blackstone, which is a you know, major private equity firm. I think it's the biggest now real estate private equity fund. And uh, they were very active at that time. So it was a very exciting time to be there. We bought out Sam Zell's equity office properties. We bought out Hilton hotels. There were these you know, very iconic transactions we worked on. And while I found it interesting, it just... That I, it, it didn't, being purely a financial engineer just didn't really um, resonate with me. Um, it just wasn't purely what I wanted to do. And I thought there was something bigger that, that I could do. And that, that is what you do when you work in private equity or you work in banking, you're an engineer, you just, as opposed to engineering electrons, you, had, you engineer, you know, numbers with dollar signs next to them. That, that's your job. And um, I just wasn't sure what to do. So I guess somewhat conveniently, the, the financial crisis uh, in real estate happened in 2007, and I was looking to kind of figure out what to do next. And so um, I guess you call it like a quarter-life crisis. Um, I spent my quarter-life crisis at Stanford Business School, which was a great place to spend it, kind of in my late 20s, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. So it had this, you know, great... Um, certainly resume building experience at Goldman Sachs and Blackstone, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. 
And I happened to meet a classmate at Stanford who came from a very different industry. He was from the technology industry. He was from Spain. His name was Adi Yajau, and he had founded a tech company in Spain uh, prior to coming to Stanford. And so he and I just hit it off and we had an idea to start a tech company and we started a tech company as students. So to be clear, that was a pretty radical and abrupt shift in, in my career, going from traditional real estate capital markets and real estate finance to starting a tech company without knowing anything about tech, but I did it. Um, and we launched it as a student, uh, as students together in our first year at Stanford Business School. Uh, um, it was a data and analytics platform that kind of rode the, the tailwind of all of this data that was being created on social media. And we enabled companies to leverage social media platforms to recruit, uh, to target job candidates they couldn't find on LinkedIn. So, you know, on LinkedIn, you can find lawyers and accountants and a bunch of white collar jobs. We were helping, um, you know, McDonald's and FedEx identify um, workers for their companies um, who typically are not on LinkedIn. And so the company was pretty successful. We raised a few rounds of venture capital. I managed to still graduate from Stanford University um, despite running the company. Uh, and it was a very Silicon Valley-y story, meaning it was literally, this is, this is, it almost feels like this is fictionalized from like a Tom Wolf book about, you know, technology startups, but like we were actually operating out of a garage um, in Palo Alto, California as students at Stanford with, you know, 15 employees by the time we graduated. Um, so again, a very abrupt transition in my career, but why don't I pause there since I just covered a lot of ground. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Brenda, for sharing that. And I recall hanging out with you in my accounting class. You brought your parents to my class, if I remember. Uh, yeah, they were they were very excited that I was going to Stanford. <laughs> yeah, of all, I, I have to interlude. Of all the courses you could bring your parents to, you're bringing them to an accounting class. I don't know what 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 was that about. I don't know. Anyway. Bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a couple of questions. I want to follow up a little bit on the banking and private equity path because that's like a shiny object to a lot of the undergrad students with whom I've worked, and and I'm wondering, you know, is it even compatible with like what we consider what some might consider a purpose-driven career or is it I mean you've you've managed to channel it that way but when you go into that path is there any kind of discussion about where that's leading no I, I don't think there is and I think that um anyone it, it's not to say that those aren't compelling careers I just don't think they they serve a purpose-driven career path um to be totally candid, I'm not sure exactly what I was looking for. I was, you know, 21 when I made the decision as to where to work. I'm not sure if I had a purpose, I knew what that purpose was. Um, but for someone who does, I think it, you know, th there is an element of working in financial services that is, um, you know, it, it is self-interested. It is, there's, there's a strong profit motive um, and you're an engineer and, and, you know, you can, you can, kind of widen out your aperture of how you look at it and say, look, you know, the proper functioning of capital markets require sophisticated people that are allocating capital to higher productive uses in an economy. And you can kind of squint your eyes and see that bankers and private equity allocators are in fact doing that. So, so 
I guess at a macro level, one could make the case and one could kind of hold on to that, 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 that kernel of purpose that there is something noble or grander about what um, financial allocators do. I don't think I necessarily had that early in my career. I was still figuring out. I was just trying to learn. Um, and, you know, I think the absence of it or the fact that it was a little non-obvious to me what that purpose was that I was working towards in my very early 20s gnawed at me. And uh, I probably couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was, but I don't think that I was... Um, happy or satisfied or fulfilled or um, certainly, you know, wanted to play out what a career trajectory in that field exclusively might look like. I, I think I almost didn't want that. And then frankly, that those are, you know, those are the decisions that that was the decision really to go to Stanford was to take that hiatus from the labor market uh, to figure out what I should be doing. And I came in pretty open-minded I, I came into Stanford really not knowing exactly what I was going to do next. Um, so, you know, to some credit, it's probably being in that ecosystem that kind of exposed me to a lot of how, a lot of the potential of what tech could represent. Um, and uh, I think it was also honestly the student base there, right? Because you, you are convening a really diverse really eclectic group of, you know, very successful people that have different life experiences come from different places throughout the world. And that amalgam creates this opportunity to kind of figure things out, I think, in a very um, opportune way in your, in your late 20s. Uh, and so that's what it was for me. Um, it was kind of the, the antidote to what I had been doing, or at least it was a a, a vestibule, a petri dish to kind of figure out where I wanted my career to go from there. And, and now as a kind of a follow-up to, you know, a few months ago, you were interviewing Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and discussing issues with respect to carbon footprints in your industry. At what point did you decide that that was going to be something that you were going to embrace as a, as a problem that you were going to try to source? And how are you going about that? Yeah, well, maybe I'll, I'll connect the rest of the dots to, to get to that because um, it's, it's a big leap. So I sold that company, Identified, that I started out of Stanford. I then started another tech company with uh, classmates called Cabify, which is today uh, one of the largest ride-sharing services in Latin America. And so I had this kind of hybrid uh, professional experience relatively early in my career, in you know, my early 30s, where I'd both worked in real estate and worked in tech. And I was very fortunate to have been exposed to tech in that way. Um, so I give credit to Stanford, I give credit to my co-founder, I give credit to a lot of people for, you know, including me and shepherd me in, into that ecosystem. Um, and that's where I had the first light bulb moment was I, I, um, I was, you know, talking to a bunch of venture capital funds to potentially work at them. But actually in those, in those kind of interviews, there was a couple things that were striking to me. One is, the way people talked about their careers felt eerily reminiscent of how people would talk about their careers in private equity and banking, meaning this, you know, super sought after industry didn't seem super fulfilling to most of the people that I was interacting with. That was at a personal level. At a more professional level, I, I didn't understand how they made money, um, meaning 
I just didn't understand how most venture capitalists made money because they they all said the same thing. You know, we we roll up our sleeves, we help out our startups. You know, we have a good network, but it did, it sounded totally undifferentiated. And the conclusion I came to is that most of venture capital is basically a mix of wildcatting and survivorship bias. Meaning, you know, in the wildcatting days of the the um, the oil industry bunch of people threw down wells without knowing what was underneath. Some of them hit oil, some of them didn't. The ones that hit oil think that the reason they hit oil is because they were so good at picking a piece of dirt, right? And then people gave them more money and they put down more oil wells. But what you call that is survivorship bias, right? So most of what I was looking at on Silicon Valley or uh, Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley it just felt like survivorship bias. I didn't think there was really any repeatable alpha, meaning you were just as likely to lose money as make money based on your past track record, which didn't really seem compelling to me. Um, so I'd never worked in venture capital, but I was like, maybe I should start a venture capital fund where I try to solve this part of the problem, which is how could one repeatably um, predict winners in, in venture capital? And venture capital is in the business of taking high risk bets on very early stage companies and some win, some lose. And, you know, how do you do that more often than not? And my view was there might be a way if one, you focus on an industry, which I was like coming from the real estate industry, I had relationships, I had domain expertise. I, I understood that industry. There were no venture capital funds focused on the real estate industry at the time, which I think speaks to a little bit of, you know, Silicon Valley, um, sometimes being a little bit insular and echo chambery, you know, there were like nine venture capital funds focused on data science or cannabis tech, you know, but um, zero focused on real estate tech. Real estate is the largest industry in the United States. Um, and so I decided to start a venture capital fund, but that's where the idea to bring in strategic LPs came from. As I said, well, what if I could have the largest partners, users, adopters of the technologies I'm investing in, as LPs, that would give me a huge advantage because I'd know what they're going to do before they do it. I'd be able to better predict winners. I'd attract the highest quality startups and the, the whole model would become somewhat self-fulfilling, right? Because you you build a brand, you, you control distribution, you can kind of be a kingmaker for your startups. And that's what my co-founder and I did. We launched a fund without knowing anything about venture capital. Um, but we built this very unique paradigm of venture capital where you have the biggest customers of your investments as investors. Um, and so that model worked, it grew. I'm getting to, to your question, Alan, um, I will arrive there. Um, but it worked really well. And so we raised our second fund, we brought in more strategic LPs, the kind of embedded distribution advantage we have only grew and accelerated. We invested in all these category winners in real estate tech companies like Open Door and Hippo and States Title and Blend and VTS. Um, and you know, since then we've obviously grown quite a bit. I also started when this was happening, realizing that um, this collision, as it were, between real estate and technology was uh, more complicated, more multidimensional than I first realized. Like in, it seems intuitive that, yeah, there's technology for a building, right? Which is where we were first investing. But then as I broadened 
you know, what this collision represented, I, in, in my own mind, I started to see that, oh, you know, retail is transforming. And so I started a retail fund that invests in emerging new occupiers of space and new retail tenants and logistics companies. I saw that it was happening internationally. So I started a European fund that does the same thing we do in the US, just in Europe, for Europe with European uh, real estate firms. But in answer to your question, I also saw that sustainability, so that there was this kind of uh, orthogonal collision between real estate and tech and sustainability that um, was happening as well. And I can talk about the reasons for that, but it seemed like a white space in the market. And so I decided to launch a fund focused on climate tech um, to kind of do what we were already doing in real estate tech and leverage a lot of those insights and distribution. Wow. <laughs> um, one question I wanted to follow up though, based on kind of what you talked about with growing this firm, you handle a lot of people's companies and you decide to invest or not invest in them. That's your job. Like what about people and projects do you see that you decide to invest in when you're looking at gaining trust or like deciding whether or not you're going to back someone? Uh, a friend of mine gave me this is, I mean, this is not comprehensive, but it's one framework that I think is important. I actually think it's pretty applicable to anyone making any career decision. Basically, what they said is that, you know, for any entrepreneur starting a company, they kind of need to be able to check three boxes. Um, one is all companies, right? Any company, the whole purpose of the company is to solve some problem, right? And it, it seems weird to think about it like that, but that is what companies do. They are human instantiations, right, that are big, sometimes enormous, but they are about problem solving. They're solving some problem in our lives, in our well-being, in the economy, and in industry. So one is that whatever problem they're purporting to solve is an important problem, right? One worth solving. Not every problem is worth solving. Um, and if a problem's not big and important, it might not be worth solving. And if you can't say authoritatively like, yes, this problem that my company that I want to start is solving is a big and important one, maybe it doesn't need solving. Um, the, the, the second part of it is, is probably a bit more um, introspective, which is like not every problem resonates with everyone, right? If you spent all day thinking about every problem in the world, you, your day would be filled thinking about problems and doing nothing. Some problems resonate with some people, um, some problems don't. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is whatever the problem it is that you're solving, it's not sufficient that it just be big and important. It has to be actually unique and authentic to you, meaning do you care about this problem being solved? And I would say probably the third thing is it's very hard to start a successful company. And so you, you kind of want to have an unfair edge in solving that problem. And that can come in many different shapes or forms. That can come in a unique perspective, that can come in a unique technology, that can come in a unique approach, but there needs to be something unique, right? Because there's a lot of people out there trying to solve problems. Uh, many of them, probably the problem that you're focused on as well. And so why will you be successful and they won't? So it's a very simple heuristic, but you know, I, I do try to think about, is this problem big? Is the entrepreneur in front of me? Um, do they genuinely care about this problem? Is this something they go to sleep at night thinking about? Is this something if they had never started this company before, would they be worrying about it? 
And three, do they have a unique advantage or edge um, in solving it? And if you can answer yes to all three questions, it might be a good idea to invest. And from an individual's perspective that's looking at starting a company, it might be a good idea to start that company. So Brendan, thanks for sharing that. Um, you sound uh, you have tremendous clarity on how to approach this and how to find your niche. Are there sources of anxiety in this space for you? And if so, kind of where do they pop in? Yeah, I, you know, it, it, when you say in this space, do you mean in 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 Fifth Wall's business today? Well, not specific. It doesn't have to be specific to the business. Just in terms of kind of what you've done. I mean, kind of where does the anxiety come? Because I, I, the reason I ask that particular question is, a lot of the people who are going to be listening here are listening to this incredible story of success, but to them, it's it's entirely overwhelming. And and part of our process is to clarify how one pushes through anxiety to kind of pursue something like this. So I'm wondering if at any point along this way, there were moments where you're like, you know, questioning how this can be done and, and having anxiety through the system. And, and what did you do around those? So I'm candidly not a particularly anxious person. So I, I wouldn't say that I've been, I've, I've had anxiety about different parts of the business, but I think there's actually an answer to your question, or I think where you're going with it, something instructive in that, which is, um, you know, one of the things that I think can be very daunting for people is they, they overvalue expertise. They think that expertise is this nebulous thing that is impossible to find. And it's this mysterious thing that somehow you get through. There's some book that says you need 10,000 hours to become an expert in something that's wrong. And maybe not being daunted by that and not being anxious about not being experts and things is some, uh, in some part, an explainer of, you know, what, what, what has happened at fifth wall, which is when I started fifth wall, I didn't know anything about venture capital or even backing up. When I started a technology company, I'd never worked in tech. I didn't particularly feel anxious about that. Um, in the beginning, I probably felt a little bit out of my depth, but not that complicated. Um, it's, you can kind of learn what goes into starting a company in relative short order. If you're just open-minded and you kind of can soak that up, it's not something that takes decades to do. It's not even something that takes years to do. You can learn it relatively quickly. And then when I started a venture capital fund, I'd never worked at a venture capital fund. I talked to a bunch of venture capitalists, but I didn't, I wasn't particularly daunted by not having started, you know, a venture capital fund. And so I think we've learned that business. And I would actually say by virtue of not having been a venture capitalist previously, I actually think we've built a better model than, you know, 99% of venture capital funds out there. I'm just unbiased. I'm unencumbered by conventions that have existed. And I actually think can be beneficial, but also can be, um, can work to your detriment if you become dependent on convention. But then in, in growing fifth wall, we've expanded into spaces that, you know, also I would say we were unfamiliar with and didn't at least at first have expertise in one being consumer retail. I'm not a, I don't have a background in consumer retail, but we want, we run one of the most successful consumer retail funds. Uh, I'm not from Europe. I've never lived in Europe, but we run the largest real estate tech fund in Europe. Now, um, when I started our climate tech fund, I didn't know anything about sustainability or climate tech. And now I would say I feel pretty conversant in it and I understand the issues very well. And we certainly have a team that has built deep expertise. So maybe the instructive lesson there is kind of people 
tend to be too daunted by the absence of expertise um, within them. And maybe that provides undue friction to starting things in unknown spaces or undue anxiety to, to your question. I think I'm fortunate that I don't suffer from that. And I think being free of that anxiety in some ways probably has helped us grow in the way we have. Do you have any thoughts kind of about the influence of social media on society and the work that you do? I guess what I, I think social media has the potential to do is to allow individuals to more broadly articulate their individuality across different mediums. I think what it has the danger to do is lead to a mass, I don't know if this is a word, but conformatization of both individuals, but also consumer preferences, meaning we all tend to like the same thing. And when people tend to all like the same thing, they're very easy to hack. Right. And I think we're seeing some of the downstream, more pernicious um, consequences of that, which is when everyone likes the same thing, it's pretty easy to get them to do things um, that they might not otherwise do. A lot of people would say your business is risky. Does it feel risky to you? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I guess it does. Like, I, I, I understand that it's risky, but like risk is just an abstraction right? R risk is just an individual playing out scenarios into the future, right? Um, and I feel like humans have a capacity to do that over much longer durations than typical animals, right? So an animal can know that, you know, running off that cliff is risky, shouldn't do that. Um, humans play out risk far more downstream than I think is appropriate, meaning they, they, they play out weeks and months and, and years and what, what they don't realize is that they're actually pretty bad at calculating risk, right? Like the easiest kinds of risks are the risks, the, the easiest kinds of risks to calculate are the risks that are right in front of your face. And then shorter, you know, the shorter duration, our brains are pretty good at calculating that risk. But I think most people, when they're thinking about their careers, a career is a long time. A um, lot of variables are changing. And so we think we're really good at calculating risks, but the truth is we're probably not actually that good at all when you start to look out a year, two years over an entire career. So probably some part of it is not trusting your long-term risk instincts and saying that if something is appealing to you, but seems inappropriately risky, too risky, um, maybe you're not so good at calcul calculating that risk. You're probably pretty good at calculating what you like and what you want to do, but you might not be so good at calculating those long-term risks associated with it. That's kind of one way maybe that, that I think about our business differently. I'm still going to move my head out of the way of a swinging baseball bat, um, but I'm not necessarily going to trust even my own intuitions on risk when thinking a year out if it's something that I think is compelling to do. I think I would be happy in my life if I had half of just the like calm and self-assurance that you're alluding to on this podcast right now. But yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for kind of sharing your story and your background and just giving us all of these amazing insights. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I think it's really awesome what, what you're doing or kind of ambitioning to do with this, with this podcast. So happy to support.
Thanks again for joining us this week. Our Instagram is at paths to the number two purpose pod. And our email is paths to the number two purpose pod at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye.